right, friends. Well, how are we doing this evening? We're like halfway through camp. I mean, I would be the Debbie Downer. It's kind of a bummer, but like we've kind of been together for a while. We're like old friends now at this point, right? It's good times. You guys having a good time? Love the energy in the room, by the way. It's fun to see you guys worship. You realize, by the way, that's one of the reasons we get together, right? You can't do that at home in your room. You can't do that like, you know, with your iPhone and just turn the, the phone on by yourself. There's something beautiful about multiple voices singing praises together where we get to exalt our God together. And it is a privilege to get to do that with you guys. So thank you just for the honor that it is to be a part of that. Uh, just a bit of review as we kind of, again, head into yet another session in the book of Romans. We saw this morning, I think, again, one in, at least in my estimation, one of the most beautiful and helpful pictures for what God has tangibly, realistically done in our lives. As you remember, we used to live over here in sin country, underneath a king or a queen, as we saw it this morning, named Queen Sin. And she ruled in our lives. We were chained and bound to her. Her decrees are what went. She didn't ask, she demanded. And we earned a wage by serving underneath that queen. That wage of sin was what? Death. Very good. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But we also found out there's a different country that's ruled by a different good queen in this case. This place called Grace and Queen Grace that ruled over here. And she reigned in a place called Graceland. And those that lived and ruled or, or, or were underneath her reign loved this woman, loved this queen because she was good and benevolent. And what she did is she came over and did what we could not do. She broke those chains and she transferred us now to a new kingdom where we could worship freely. She broke those chains forever. And she said, there is no need for you ever to return here. However, there are times in our Christian lives that we find ourselves not permanent residents over here like we used to be, but at times we wander and we find ourselves in situations where we're still there. And yet the mastery of sin is done in our lives. We now have a new and wonderful master. And Paul says that's something not only do you need to know in your head, you need to consider it in your heart, and you need to allow the truth of that reality to begin to seep out of every pore in your body, that it would become evident that you would present the members of your body as instruments, not to unrighteousness like we used to do, but as righteousness. And as we concluded in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul left off by telling us that we are not under law anymore. We are not like a slave who does all that he has to do, but can't do all that he can. As you think about who Israel used to be, they used to check all these boxes, right? Try to do all the right things, but they neglected serving God out of a sense of love and righteousness. And the reason was because they were slaves in bondage to sin. But now, under grace, as you and I are, that love of God becomes our motivating factor to serve him, not to try to please him. We are already loved already known and already accepted, but our motivation is begin to change again. So Paul's going to ask a question in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. We're going to wrap up kind of this thought process that Paul's been in, and then we're going to finish in chapter 7 tonight. This will be a bit more of a rock-skipping exercise as we've done maybe in the past. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, read it with me. This is Paul's question. What then, very similar to chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin because we are not under law, but under grace. Should we continue now to sin because we're under this idea of grace? Here's the picture. 
uh, I told you guys I have three girls, right? My oldest two, when they come home to the house now, one is 21 and one is 19, do you know what they no longer have that they used to have living underneath my rule and reign until they were 18? I used to tell them, hey, girls, you need to be home at this certain time because you're 18, you're still a kid, and I'm responsible for you. But now that you're 19, you are free from that law. You are now under grace, so you no longer have a curfew. You no longer have to come in. When I tell you to come in, you're an adult, and you manage your own affairs. And that's the idea here. Because now we're under grace, can we do whatever we want? So Paul, in verse 16, he gives an argument to this question. And his argument, as you're going to see, is based on fact. Look at verse 16 with me. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? There's this idea again of slavery. And I want you to notice, incidentally, what Paul calls salvation there. When you were saved, you present yourself as a slave. Is that part of your gospel, by the way? Is that part of the reality of your worlds? Because it should be. That is a fact. When we were freed from this old king in our lives, king sin, that kingdom was transferred, or that kingship was transferred. Our residency was transferred to a new glorious king, but we are slaves nonetheless. And the idea is because we are slaves to this new king, we are under a constraint. When you join the military and you sign on the dotted line, you are irresistibly under their control. So does coming to Christ in faith bring about an impulse in us is the idea. Paul says it should. It should begin now underneath this new king to change something inside of us. By the way, you ever notice how testimonies go? A lot of people, as they share their faith, as they talk about their before Christ days, hey, I hated to read the Bible. I couldn't stand going to church. And then I came to Christ. God did a work in my life. And now I find myself actually wanting to do those things. I want to read my Bible. I want to be in small groups. I want to share and so what time. Something is beginning to change in me where I used to abhor those things. Now there's actually a desire beginning to, to brew in my life because this is evidence of that constraint, these polar opposite desires, but the same basis of constraint. Paul says, whether you are a non-believer underneath the reign of sin, you have a desire to sin. But now as a believer under grace, you're still a slave, but something is beginning to change. And in verses 17 and 18, he continues, but thanks be to God that though we were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There it is again. We are slaves to a new master. Now, that's what salvation is according to Paul. Before you're a Christian, uh, what does he say you are? You're a slave. You're under the constraint of sin. But now things have changed. Back in the day, nobody had to tell you to go sin, right? You did that on your own. In fact, you enjoyed it just like I did. But what has salvation begun to produce in you? Paul says there's now a heartfelt obedience towards the gospel. As I walk through camp this morning, I just happened to be kind of walking through, and I want to tell you a couple things that I noticed speaking of this. I watched a couple people that just had their Bibles open. They were sitting alone. They were reading the Word. They were praying in silence. There was a desire to serve the Lord. 
I saw people coming to morning devotions, having the desire to be here and sit underneath the, the, the word of God as it was being taught by some of our counselors. I heard you guys the first night when we were doing rowdy worship, right? I, I watched you guys this evening respond to the worship team. There's something in us that God is doing that draws us to him, that makes us want to, to change who we are and to, to tell him those things, things that we used to not want to do, but now we do. In fact, Acts chapter 26 says that you and I have been transferred from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. We have a new ruler in our life. And that idea, Paul is continuing to drive home again and again because it is so important. And he says in verse 19, that ruler is resulting in a changed life. And he goes on now to say, here in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He says, just as you used to offer your body up to ungodly things, now I want you to offer it up to godly pursuits. In light of this new life that you have now, in light of this new family that you and I have been adopted into, the Christian is constantly asking the question, Father, are the things that I am doing pleasing to you? Are you happy with how I am living my life? Does this thing that I am doing or thinking represent the good and holy nature of the God that I serve? This is the 50 cent word at the end of verse 19, at least my translation. It calls it sanctification. If you're reading out of NIV, it simply says at the end of verse 19, leading to holiness. The idea is that we've talked about before. The gospel, again, is not just something that comes at you at a point in time that you accept, though it certainly is. But the gospel, the grace of God in our lives, is actually the thing that continues to make us look and be more like Jesus. But there is a tension in this, what Paul calls in verse 19, a sanctification process of us becoming more like Jesus. We have this overwhelming tendency within us, according to chapter 6, to want to do that, to love God, but we also have in chapter 7, as we're going to see, this struggle that's also within us, and it's like two dogs that are at battle within us, right? But they're not equal and opposite dogs. It's like one is a German shepherd and the other is a little chihuahua, but they are going at it inside of us in some way, and you now have the willpower of a new master within you, but you still have the impulses of that old dog, of that old master. And we're going to elaborate on that idea as we move forward. But in our walks, as we seek to look more like Christ, there is this constant tension in our lives. In verse 20, Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness, meaning you had no constraint, no desire to do the right things. Is that true in our lives? It was certainly true in mine. Now you are free, and you are free to please God as he desires. And in verse 21, I want you to notice the result of that former lifestyle, as Paul calls it. He says in verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Paul says, what benefit or what fruit came in your life from those things that you pursued before you were a Christian? Now, guys, I don't know when you came to faith. Some of you, you like came out of the womb, 
And like, you knew Jesus, right? Your parents raised you in a godly home. You understood the gospel early and you accepted Christ and your before Christ days are small and there may be a little less sin stained than some of ours. I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 18 years old. And friends, there are things in my past as I look back on, as Paul says, these things that you are now ashamed, I feel that. I feel the weight of that. And I think, Lord, I wish if I had a big, fat, red reset button that I could hit the reset button on some of those choices that I made, some of those decisions that I walked outside of the will of God as a non-Christian who didn't necessarily know better, but those things cause pain and difficulty in my life. And I'm still, even today, unpacking the U-Haul of baggage that those things brought into my world. And he says, in a lot of ways, our former lives brought us just that, shame, sometimes embarrassment, uh, and our past can do that. In a sense, what Paul is saying is we should look different. It would be like, for instance, taking a kid from the street who was living off banana peels and cockroaches, and you adopt this kid into your home. You say, you are mine. I am now your father or your mother, and you're going to live in my home. You can eat from anything in this house that you want. All that I have is yours. And this kid says, wait a second. So that freezer that's full of food, that's mine. That bed and that bedroom that you made just for me, I can, I can sleep there anytime I want. This yard, I can walk into the back of and play to my heart's content. I can swing on these swings. And you say as a parent who's adopted this kid, yes, all of that is absolutely true. And then for that kid to say, you know what? I think I'm going to actually go back outside and eat some cockroaches and banana peels. You would say, that's insane. You'd say, boy, what's wrong with you? Enjoy the fruits of what's been given to you. You used to do those things, but they brought about shame in your life. Embrace these new things. Verse 22, Paul goes on. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. There's that word again. Resulting in a life that looks more like Jesus. And the outcome, eternal life. You have been freed, according to Paul, once again, is according to this idea, from sin's penalty and sin's power. And I want you to notice how Paul sees a believer now, once again, you are enslaved to God. The believer has an unction within him, a compulsion to obey his king, not out of duty, but out of delight. And now you derive a different fruit, not one that brought embarrassment or shame, but one that brings about sanctification in our lives. Paul says as he concludes this chapter, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word wage is a word that means a soldier's pay. It's what you get for being a resident in sin country, as we talked about earlier. And that wage, again, was death. But in verse 23 in that back part, what you get when you serve King Jesus. It's not a wage, it's a gift. And what you get when he works for you, when he adopts you into Graceland, you get eternal life. So why would we ever go back to that lifestyle? What Paul is saying all across Romans chapter 6, number one, you have been grafted into this new life. That's what we talked about this morning. The branch that we were was pulled out of that old tree and it was placed into a new tree. Or maybe to use the illustration that we've been talking about, we left one master, we were freed from that master, and were brought into the mastery of a good and righteous king. 
But not only did that happen externally, there was something also happening internally, that there is now a desire within us, a new constraint, a new unction to serve him, this new master, this wonderful master, in a new way as slaves. And he says, continued unrestrained sin as a result of what has happened in our lives is both impossible and illogical. So what Paul has said, big pictures, we maybe float back up to 30,000 feet for just a minute. In chapters three through five, he has said, we are free from the penalty of sin. Chapter six now exists to show us that the power of sin that used to be over us has been broken. But now Paul's going to walk into chapter seven. And this is fascinating to me. Chapter seven exists to deal with the continued presence of sin. Because sin, as we mentioned this morning, is still very much alive. It is there, and you and I are going to have to learn how to wrestle with it. In chapter 7, Paul's going to walk now through two more illustrations. In verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about a remarried widow whose former husband has died, and now because of his death, she is legally free to be a new man's wife. Does that sound familiar? This woman used to be over here. That husband died. She died to that relationship, and now she is free to move on. It's the same picture that Paul paints in a different way. And then in verses 7 through 25, through the rest of the chapter, Paul uses a word that we have not seen yet. Paul uses the word I. Paul is going to share with you and I his personal testimony after Christ and what his relationship with walking with the Lord looks like. And he's going to talk about in himself in his very life, the tension of the power of sin being gone, but its presence still being at war within him. And in verse 7 through 13, as we talk about this section, he begins to first talk about the law, and we'll move through this really quickly. As we talked about earlier, Paul says the law is a wonderful thing. The problem is it's a thermometer. It's not a thermostat. It can show you what the temperature is, but it cannot change it. So the law was great, Paul, being a Jew, acknowledges that, but he said it was powerless to save him. It was just a long list of do's and don'ts that were wonderful things from the Lord, but it was never meant to save him. And then in verses 14 now through 25, Paul's going to talk in the present tense, and this is where we're going to skip down to. Paul will use himself as an illustration. The words, by the way, I, me, or my, are used 35 times in verses 14 through 25. Friends, Paul is trying to tell us something. In his life, as a guy who wrote the book of Romans, as he wrote two-thirds of our New Testament, he is saying, I am still working this out. The presence of sin is still lingering in my life. And though I desire to please the Lord, I'm still in the midst of this battle. So let's look together at this struggle through the lens of Paul's testimony. Skip down to Romans chapter 7, verse 14, and let's watch now as Paul shares his life with us. For he says this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. There we see it again. The law is good. That's not the problem that we're dealing with here. But there is a problem. In what way is that bondage still there? Remember, we've seen that the penalty of sin has been eradicated The power of sin is also gone, but what about its presence? 
Is sin's presence eradicated from our lives as believers? No, it's still very much there. And you'll notice what Paul says is under bondage, this idea that he calls the flesh. This is dog one. This is the little chihuahua within us. That word flesh refers to a life lived apart from the Spirit of God. In a sense, what Paul is saying is it's someone who's using their own power, their own tactics, their own strength to try to please God. Because sin is so powerful, and I am so weak on my own, I will always end up submitting to sin. And Paul actually takes it a step past that. He says this flesh, this carcass that we live in, is actually hostile towards God. He says this in Romans chapter 8. It will not subject itself to God, for it is unable to do so. I shared with you guys earlier about my tenure playing soccer in high school. I played for Coach Blakely. In a sense, what Paul is saying is, though I graduated, and though I have been free from the mastery of his reign in my life, there is a part of me, my flesh, that will never, ever play for another coach. It will remain underneath the mastery of Coach Blakely until I meet Jesus in heaven. That is how Paul is defining this idea of the flesh. He explains further in verse 15. Listen to this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would like to do. Sorry, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. I want you to write with your pen, either in your Bible or in your notes, these words, I want, but I can't. I want, but I can't. This is what Paul is saying. I have a desire to do right. I, in fact, know what is right. I know what pleases God, but I simply cannot do it. I find myself practicing and doing the very thing that I wouldn't want to do the very thing actually in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, that I hate. Have you guys ever felt that way? Have you ever seen sin show up in your life like that? That you know that thing, thank you for ever being honest, that thing in your life that you know is not going to bring you joy or happiness or whatever it is, but you find yourself walking down that road again and saying, Lord, why am I doing this? Now, there's a difference between us and a non-Christian. A non-Christian will do those things, and they won't feel that sense of conviction brought on by God. When we do those things as a believer, there's a sense that God is stirring in us. And Paul's got to say the same thing. I've got a struggle that's happening within me. There's this bondage that's going on within me in conjunction with the freedom that I've just been given. Paul says it doesn't make sense. At the end of the day, he still struggles by doing what he hates in omitting what he loves. And friends, here is the reason there is a struggle, and we need to fundamentally understand this. Paul, just like you and me, has two natures. The old man, the old self, the person that came, in a sense, from being a non-Christian, and this new nature. Paul says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, rather, chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. So we have this new nature that's been promised by God, but that old nature, that flesh that Paul's talking about, is still lingering. It's like the smell of a skunk that simply will not go away. It stays around. And Paul says that thing is what he calls 
the flesh. And that new nature is the spirit. And these two dogs are fighting within us. One wants to serve God and honor him. The other wants to serve its own pleasures and desires in the things that we have been doing for our whole life. And Paul says this in verse 17, regarding this battle, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now listen to this. Paul's not making an excuse. He's not saying, hey, listen, I have no control. He is simply acknowledging the extent and the power of indwelling sin in his life. He is saying, this is how strong the flesh's desire is to follow after sin. So don't make this an excuse. Chapter uh, 6, verse 17 isn't saying, you know what, Lord, I'm simply, I'm going to live in this defeatist mentality. I can't do these things. Paul says he can't do these things. So I'm going to quit trying to pursue you, and I'm just going to give up and kind of let bygones be bygones and pursue the flesh. That's not what Paul's doing. He actually loathes the sin that's within him. And in verse 18, he concludes, and it just amplifies what he's been talking about this whole time. Look at verse 18. For I know, Paul says, that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, in this body, in this carcass. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Are you willing to admit that, as Paul is? It's a really difficult thing to say, that within my body, on my own, I do not have the ability to please God because that old nature of the flesh and the sin that it wants to pursue is so strong and so overpowering in my life. If I go up against it without God's help in this matter, if I approach it simply in my flesh, I'm a goner. I will never, ever win that battle. And that is what Paul is saying. Nothing good dwells in his body that he will find helpful in fighting that battle. Again, this doesn't mean that we're not made in the image of God. Don't hear that. It doesn't mean that we are not fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. All those things remain true. It simply means that in this body, there is nothing good in there. And if I am relying on my flesh to follow after God, I will always fail. It's not a law problem. It's not a willpower problem. It is a flesh problem. I will never have the power to do what needs to be done on my own. I have the willingness, but never the power. That's what Paul says. The willing is present within me, but the doing of good is not. And continuing here in verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but again, I practice the very evil that I do not want. Does that sound familiar? But if I am doing the very thing I don't want or do, don't want to do, I am no longer the one that doing it, but sin that dwells within me. I want you to write again, next to verse 20, I want, but I can't. Paul again is saying, I have this desire, I simply cannot do it. I want, but I can't. In verse 21, he says, I find this principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. Paul says, my behavior, even now as a believer in Jesus Christ, who has put his full trust in him, I confirm that I still wrestle with the realities of chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that I still pursue the things that my flesh desires. Now, is this truth confined only to non-believers? No. Look at the end of verse 21. 
Paul says, it's actually in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul says, there's a struggle within me, the one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, free from the penalty and power of sin, yet still in bondage to my depraved flesh, the one who wants to do good, but still struggling to do it. Now, as we read this, this should cause some pause in us. On the one hand, it should cause fear in every one of us, because the reality is, are you and I ever at a place where we are above or beyond or such mature, at a mature level in our walks with Jesus that we can no longer destroy our lives because of sin? Am I ever in my life at a point where I know for sure I will never commit adultery? No. What Paul says is, Mike, that's possible. And until you meet Jesus face to face and he gives you a new body, you are capable still of the worst sins. Now, that's not license. That's not permission. But what Paul is saying is you were never past that. See also King David, who walked with God and yet imploded his life because of poor decisions that he made. Paul says, in a sense, you better run scared. You better realize what your body is capable of because it can do damage if you don't control it. You better fight the fight and put the deeds of the flesh to death. Just because you got a big S on your chest because you're saved, it doesn't mean that you are exempt from any list of sins. It can still absolutely happen. So this text, in a sense, should sober us up to that reality. But on the other hand, this passage should also bring some comfort. After reading chapter 6, you start feeling like, dude, am I the only person in the room that's struggling with sin? Am I the weirdo here? Like, everybody else has this figured out. Like, everybody else is just killing it. They're getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning and having quiet times and, like, levitating because they're, like, on that level with Jesus. Am I the only person who's still trying to tame his tongue? Am I the only person that's trying to, to beat down the desires of my flesh? Friends, I am so thankful that Paul had the courage to say, this is my life. Because in this, what I see is this is, in a sense, the normative Christian experience. Again, we're not delighting in sin. We're not moving towards that. We're not advocating that. What Paul is saying is, I still struggle, and you and I are going to struggle together in this journey. This text, in a sense, should humble us and point us to the grace of God that has not only forgiven us, but as Ephesians says, can give life to your mortal bodies and allow you to find victory over sin. And in verses 22 and 23, as we conclude this chapter, Paul gives a summary conclusion about these two dogs, the flesh and the spirit that are battling within him. Look at chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Paul says, For I joyfully concur that the law of the God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. I want you to write one last time next to that verse, I want, but I can't. That is what Paul is saying. That is the reality in his life. Three times in that text, he is trying to show us, I have the desire, I have the willpower. That is not the problem. I do not have the power to defeat king's sin's lingering presence in my life because my flesh will not submit to this new king. These two dogs are constantly at war within us, the flesh and the spirit, the old and the new nature. 
And there will never be a time this side of glory until we see Jesus face to face, friends, when that battle will not be the reality. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but for some reason, when we became Christians, God chose to allow the flesh to remain in our lives. He freed us again from its mastery, but he allowed its presence to stay there. And now I want you to notice, as Paul concludes this thought in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. This is how he feels about that tension. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want to walk in it, but this is the tension that he feels. This is his conclusion about his body, about his his flesh. And he asks now a question. And if it's true here, what Paul says, that we've been justified by Christ, the penalty of sin has been removed. If it's true that we've also been secured by Christ, that the power of sin has been dealt with, thus producing a new life within us. What again about this presence of sin? Here's the question that he's asking. If you're telling me, Mike, if you're telling me that there's always going to be this struggle, how can we ever truly, this side of heaven, be like Jesus? Do you feel that a little bit? In a sense, what that can lead to is just this defeatist mentality. If you're telling me that I can never, ever please God in my flesh, and I'm always going to struggle with certain temptations over time, it can lead to the sense of, I'm just going to live defeated. And Paul says in verse 24, with that being a reality, a hypothetical reality, he says, who will set me free from the body of sin and death? And here's the answer as he concludes in verse 25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul says the same Savior that saved him, that saved you, that saved me, is the same Savior who will make you more like him. Now, I want you to notice in this section, again, we saw those words, I, me, and my, used 35 times. Did anybody notice an extremely important ingredient in this process of battling sin that Paul didn't mention yet in this section. What's missing? Somebody say it, say it louder. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is missing from this part intentionally. Chapter 7, verse 14 through 25 is saying, this is what man looks like in his own efforts, in his own attempts to battle sin without the help of God, without the new resource, without the new power that he has given us. And the horror of this section is that Paul is saying, if I approach my walk with God that way, if I think just because I have this new identity, just because I have adoption papers that say I am no longer under king sin, but I am now living in Graceland under this new king, if I try simply with that mentality and try really, really hard to please God, Paul says we are going to fail every time because those two dogs fighting in you, they need something bigger. The problem is that we haven't seen yet, and the solution ultimately to this problem is one of those dogs that God has given us in our new nature 
is actually the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself that lives within you and me and has given us the ability to battle sin. And we will talk about what that looks like tomorrow morning. Because what it doesn't look like is what Paul just showed us, trying to meet the requirements of the law in our flesh. So friends, here maybe are a couple thoughts as we land the plane on this. I want you to know this, and Paul does as well. You and I are not alone in our struggle with sin. As believers, we, like Paul, are going to flesh this thing out. Now, we're not talking about habitual sin. We're not talking about living in this calloused way where there's no sense of repentance, where we long-term live in sin country with no sense of wanting to, to walk with God. But we are, on a daily basis, going to continue to wrestle with the flesh. And we are not alone in that. We're going to battle together to pursue God. And I want you to notice also that God knows this. He's not surprised at me or at you when you battle with certain things, lust or greed or envy or anxiety or depression or worry. When those things come in your life that you know, Lord, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to pursue those things. God is saying, I know. That's part of who you still are. But I want to help you work through that with the power that I'm going to give you. It's part of our old nature that will not die, that still is very much present. But what we're going to see tomorrow is that we're not going to stay stuck here. God has given us the means to walk with him, to obey him. And that change is going to come from the inside out. And friends, for a lot of us, it's going to feel a little bit like throwing left-handed. It's going to be really awkward at first to learn how to do this, to learn how to tap into this power that God has given us. It is, it is unnatural. We did not grow up doing that. But we're going to see as a result of this long, sweet seasons of victory over sin's presence in our life if we will again yield and allow God to work his way. So friends, can you and I commit together that we're not going to give up? We're not going to live in this defeatist mentality that Paul alluded to that is possible. Will you and I tonight commit to one another to say that we're going to pursue the Lord and we're not going to allow sin to have its way in us, our flesh to rule and reign in our lives because that power has been broken. But will we also commit to learn to walk anew and as we see tomorrow morning, as we dive into the Holy Spirit and what God has given us as his means to grow and walk with him and to defeat sin in our lives, will we commit together to tap into that power, to tap into that reality and walk in faithfulness and obedience to him? Will you commit to that with me? Will you commit to that with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. I'm so grateful for Paul's testimony. God, there are so many times I remember thinking as a believer, Lord, what is going on within me? Why won't these desires go away? Why are these yearnings still happening within me? And Father, to read Paul's words and to know that it's an unfortunate reality in the life of a Christian, it's still there, but it brings me in this weird sense comfort to know that I'm not the only one battling sin. But Father, I want to move towards you and I know the students in this room, they want to do the same. They want to please you and walk with you because of what you have already done for them. 
We don't do that, God, to earn your favor. We do that because we as a PS at the end of a letter, Lord, want to say thank you. What else could we do with our lives and submit them to you? So, Father, would you help us to walk this out, to acknowledge and realize the, the power of sin that still is, in a sense, God, there because its presence is not gone. But would we walk in a newness of life, and would you help us to learn how to submit to the Spirit, how to walk with Him, and let Him have His way in our lives? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who made all of this possible because of his death and his burial and his resurrection on a cross. And we have faith in that because of him paying the price for our sin. Father, we have life with you. And that life is sweet and good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.